Hello, everyone, and welcome to BizLit Today, a podcast series hosted on Law.com and sponsored by Shook, Hardy, and Bacon. I'm your host, Scott Ferguson. Let's join Privacy and Data Security Practice Chair Al Cycli as he discusses with his colleagues the hottest trends in privacy litigation. Hi, everybody. I'm Al Cycli, Chair of the Privacy and Cybersecurity Practice at Shukart and Bacon. For the next few minutes, we're going to discuss some of the hottest privacy issues that business owners and in-house counsel really need to know about to help mitigate their exposure. Chief amongst those concerns is website privacy litigation and also pixel class action lawsuits. Um, if you are not familiar with what is a pixel, well, you've come to the right podcast. So I'm joined by two of my colleagues, partners Jennifer McLoon, who is in our Miami office, and Rachel Strauss, who is speaking to us from our Los Angeles office. Both handle high stakes consumer class action and complex litigation matters. Thank you both for being part of this discussion. So I guess we'll jump into the underlying technology that is the basis for these lawsuits. So we've heard of things called pixels. We've heard of session replay. Essentially, these are website monitoring tools. A lot of companies use these. Marketing departments love these tools. They are a way for companies to understand who is accessing their websites and what they're doing on their website. Uh, session replay, for example, gives a company the ability to recreate a consumer's visit to their website so that the company can understand where are the parts of the website that the individual is clicking on, what is the most popular area, are there potential issues that need to be addressed with the website. Similarly, pixels and other marketing tags can be used to help retarget advertisements and generally target individuals who visit the websites when they visit other platforms like Google or Facebook. And so there's a lot of value to using these tools. But recently, we've seen this wave of class action lawsuits that have been based on them. Um, Shook is currently handling a few dozen of these right now, and the number just keeps growing. And two of the leading litigators in this space are Jen and Rachel. So Jen, maybe you want to start by telling us a little bit about the session replay cases. You were one of the first lawyers in the country to handle some of these cases a couple of years ago when the first real wave really kind of hit us and it hit us here in Florida. Maybe talk a little bit about your experience and thoughts on that kind of those kind of cases. Sure. Thanks, Al. So like you said, you know, session replay in and of itself is a very common tool that's used by companies really just to uh, monitor how their website is functioning. It basically... Um, it's a misnomer to say that it's recording communications, which is really what the plaintiffs were trying to claim. But what it does is it gathers various data points as users navigate around a company's website and it collects those data points and then uh, creates a replay of the user's interactions with the website on an overlay of the, uh, the website so that companies can see if, for example, users are having difficulty going from one link to another, uh, they can see where that glitch is occurring and they can fix it. So it's really kind of used on like the back end to make sure that websites are functioning from a technical perspective properly so that users aren't being frustrated when they're trying to navigate around a website and they can't do what they want to do. What we saw in Florida in um, 
2021, and I know Rachel saw some of this in California, so she can speak to that too, is a wave of lawsuits that were claiming that the use of this session replay technology on websites constituted um, a violation of Florida's Security and Communications Act. And that statute is... Um, you know, it's been on the books for, for decades, really has not been applied in this context before up until this, um, this theory came about in the litigation, but it's basically a wiretap statute. So it was designed to protect against people from eavesdropping in on other people's communications. Um, so it was really a novel approach to say that this software constituted a violation of the Security and Communications Act. And what we were able to do in Florida, and we were successful in getting dismissals in federal court, the first dismissals in Florida federal court, um, is basically we were able to explain to the courts why this technology was why the act really wasn't applicable to this technology. And we kind of described it as trying to fit a square peg into a round hole. So the Florida Act has pretty clear requirements as to what constitutes wiretapping and under what circumstances. And we were able to walk the court through why the session replay software doesn't constitute a violation of the act. Florida is one of the few states, I think there's maybe nine or so total, that require two-party consent for um, recording of communications. And that was really the hook that the plaintiffs were trying to rely on in Florida. So in other states where it's a single party consent state, as long as one party to the communication consents to the uh, recording or the interception of that communication, there can't be a violation of the Wiretap Act unless certain exceptions apply. Florida, you need both parties to consent. So the plaintiff's theory was that even if um, the website owner, in our cases, it was a lot of retailers, even if they consented to the communication being recorded by virtue of having the session replay software on their website, the user of the website, the consumer navigating to the website didn't consent and their consent was also required. So one of the arguments that we had focused on the privacy policies and whether um, there was affirmative consent to the privacy policies or you know, the sufficiency of the disclosure of the privacy policies in terms of use on the website, such that we could say that the user of the website consented. And then we had other arguments about whether what session replay was capturing truly fit the definition of the Florida Security and Communications Act. In other words, was it really con capturing contents of a communication as opposed to just navigation around a website, which we analogized to basically the same thing as going to your local store and the closed caption TV that's used for security purposes watches your movement up and down the aisles. That's not intercepting a communication. That's just a, a monitoring, a tracking um, feature. That's permissible under the Wiretap Act. So we had to kind of take this electronic world application and put it into you know a real world uh, analogies so that we could argue whether it fit or didn't fit within the parameters of the the statute so while we were doing that in florida i know rachel was doing that in california and some of the um the courts in florida like i said were receptive to the dismissal arguments and it kind of ended the litigation in florida other courts have allowed these cases to go beyond the motion to dismiss 
phase gone on to litigation uh, discovery. And so we're seeing the session replay cases take off in other jurisdictions now um, where the, the courts have been a little bit more favorable to plaintiffs in terms of allowing the cases to proceed. Right. And there have been a couple of decisions, I guess, from the Ninth Circuit and the Third Circuit that seem to have emboldened plaintiffs in in those areas. Um, and I, I guess, would you say, Jan, or <clears throat> what's been one of the impetus for, for, for all these new filings? Yeah, I'll let Rachel speak on the Ninth Circuit because she um, has been handling that from the get-go. But cer certainly the Third Circuit decision um, in coming out of the Pennsylvania District Court, Pennsylvania District Court allowed um, session replay case to survive a motion to dismiss, uh, summary judgment went up on appeal, and the Third Circuit found that there were questions of fact as to the consent question and other questions of fact as to basically how the technology works and where certain things occur in terms of where is the interception, at what point within the transmission of the communication, is there an interception? Uh, and those, so summary judgment was inappropriate there, and those cases have been proceeding. So we've seen a wave of filings in Pennsylvania. We've seen some in Massachusetts and Maryland, which are also both two-party consent states. And then we're even seeing plaintiffs now trying to file cases in um one-party consent states and trying to invoke certain exceptions to the wiretap acts there that um, they they think will allow them to get to survive beyond the limitation of the one-party consent. So I guess uh, talking a little bit about what's been going on throughout the country and one of the most, if not the most active state for some of these uh, wiretap class action lawsuits, and generally these website monitoring lawsuits is California. Uh, Rachel, talk to us a little bit about some of the cases that you're handling or the, you know, the, 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 the trends that you're seeing out there anyway, and, um, and what's going on with these cases there. Yeah, I mean, the biggest thing we're seeing in California is a lot of very creative lawyering. And plaintiffs are trying to use the California Invasion of Privacy Act, which is California's wiretapping statute, among other things, to pursue these website monitoring claims. Um, it started off with session replay cases like Jen was talking about earlier. Um, there was a certain law firm that filed a whole bunch of session replay cases under the California Invasion of Privacy Act. And all the defense counsel thought those cases were going to quickly go away. They eventually, one of them went up to the Ninth Circuit in a case called Javier versus Assurance IQ. The Ninth Circuit said that the California Invasion of Privacy Act actually applied to websites. That was one of the primary questions. It was in dicta, um, but it was enough to get plaintiffs off to the races on these cases. And since the Ninth Circuit decided Assurance IQ, plaintiffs' counsel have filed hundreds of these similar cases under the California Invasion of Privacy Act claims in California, alleging various portions of the website, various tools violate the California Invasion of Privacy Act. The first theory I said was session replay. Um, after those cases were filed, the plaintiffs started bringing cases related to the chat feature on websites. And they're alleging that the chats are being transcribed without consent. And this is a wiretapping and a violation of the California Invasion of Privacy Act. These chat box cases were filed by mostly by one firm, um, but they filed hundreds of these cases. And initially the court seemed somewhat receptive, but in the last, I would say, couple months, 
the court has the courts have been pushing back on this theory and it seems like these are kind of going away we're not seeing so many new filings based on this chat box function the biggest thing that we're seeing now is related to facebook pixels um i'll talk a little bit about what that was before but plaintiffs are alleging that having facebook pixels on a website is a violation of the california invasion of privacy act um, that it's wiretapping because the information is being sent back to facebook and Facebook is able to match up that information with the user based on a Facebook ID. We're seeing, we're seeing these several iterations of these cases. Um, we're seeing individual arbitrations bought by single claimants um, against various companies. There's been, as far as I know, hundreds of these arbitrations filed alleging a violation of the California Invasion of Privacy Act um, based on this Facebook pixel idea. And we're also seeing a number of class actions. The other place that we're really seeing this, both in California and throughout the country, is in these Facebook pixel cases related to healthcare um, hospitals, usually smaller hospitals um, and other health court, healthcare organizations, because plaintiffs are alleging that when they go on and these companies are having the information tracked about what they're looking for, the information that they're looking for is related to their medical records and their health records. Um, so that's kind of what we're seeing around the country. And those are cases that are really exploding both in California and around the country. That's a great overview. So um, up next, we're going to talk about ways in which companies can mitigate some of these risks and really what could be some of the next big things to watch in privacy litigation. Shook, Hardy & Bacon is a premier trial firm serving clients in the health, science and technology sectors. We help companies resolve claims using creative solutions to complex commercial litigation matters. Shook attorneys build on decades of experience and are positioned to provide end-to-end -end litigation support. All right, so we are back talking with uh, Shook partners, Jen McClune and Rachel Strauss. I'm Al Seikley, Chair of the Privacy and Cybersecurity Practice here at Shook. Um, we've been discussing website privacy litigation and pixel class action lawsuits. Let's move now to talk a little bit about some of the ways in which companies can try to mitigate these risks, maybe more proactively. Rachel, what are your thoughts on that front? What have you been advising clients? Yeah, I mean, I think the two two big things right now. Every, unfortunately, almost every company that has a website is vulnerable right now. If they have a public facing website, they're vulnerable to either having a demand sent to them or having a litigation filed. And so the first thing is to figure out what exactly, what tools are you using, what website monitoring tools are you using on your website and make sure that you're actually using these tools. I mean, is the Facebook pixel turn on? Yes. If it is, are you actually using the information? Is the company need it? Um, it's, you know, obviously it's, Fine if it is, it's just make sure you understand what's on your website because plaintiffs are looking right now. They've hired experts to go on and look at all of these websites and see what tools are running. And it's very easy to check and to see what tools are running and make sure that you actually need it. The second thing is if you are using any of these tools is to disclose it and be very careful about these disclosures and make sure that you're very particular about what you're disclosing. You know, we always like to say that it's not a violation to use these tools or do any of these tracking, but according to plaintiffs, it's a violation not to disclose that you're doing that. So you have to make sure that there's a disclosure on there. Um, and the disclosure can be in multiple places and should be in multiple places. Um, it could be part of the pop-up banner 
And we like to advise that it should be part of the pop-up banner because you see that and anyone coming to the website sees that before they even go on the website, before any of the tracking tools start, start the tracking. So you would wanna put a disclosure about what exactly you're using, what kind of tools you're using in that, in that pop-up banner. Another place that you would wanna put a disclosure is in the privacy policy and also in the terms of use for the website. Um, so, you know, it's just working on that language, knowing what's already there in that language and revising it um, and to try to keep ahead of these things. So you just, you wanna try to keep your company out of the crosshairs and the best way to do that is a disclosure. The, the one other thing I would say, in addition to looking at the disclosures, you may also wanna take a look, another look at the arbitration provision, um, just to make sure that it's robust enough because again, we are seeing hundreds of arbitration demands sent out related to Facebook pixel cases. So you just wanna take a look and see if there's anything that you can do um, to mitigate risk that way too. Yeah, I mean, that's so true. When you think about um, some of the clients that we've advised, number one, I'd say is un understanding what this technology does. You know, I think for some clients, it's a little bit, honestly, surprising, but, um, you know, maybe that there are some features that they could turn on to maximize privacy controls. Uh, you know, that certainly seems one way to kind of go about it. I think also for companies or entities that are uh, considered covered entities under HIPAA, they should take a look at the OCR guidance from December of last year to determine whether they need to potentially have a business associate agreement in place, because at least according to the OCR, OCR they they believe that if there's going to be sharing of PHI with a third party as a result of using some of these monitoring tools, and one could argue whether the information being shared with a third party is in fact PHI. But regardless, if you were to take the position that it is, then you may need to have a business associate agreement in place. Uh, and you know, depending on whether you were using any of these marketing tags in the portal versus on the standard, you know, regular web page, there may even potentially be notification obligations, depending again on what information is being shared with third parties. You know, engaging third-party consulting firms to come in and help you understand what was being done. If you're just kind of realizing this for the first time, might also be something else to consider. So. Seems like there's a number of steps that companies can take. Um, <clears throat> Jen, is there anything else you wanted to add to that? Or uh, is that pretty consistent with what you've been advising clients? I think that's right. I mean, I think the biggest thing is just for companies to be aware of the potential risks, uh, you know, and not just the legal department, but making sure that that information is sort of cascaded out to the individuals who are actually using these tools or employing these tools so that when there are updates made to them or when there are updates to the privacy policy or the pop-up language, uh, that legal is being included in that. So, you know, basically everybody's on the same page with what's happening. I think that's really important for the companies to be able to uh, mitigate any risks. So, I, you know, we talked a little bit about these lawsuits and what's happening now and how these lawsuits came about. Let's focus now on what we can expect to see moving forward and if there are any emerging trends um, that you all are seeing that should be something that listeners should look out for. Um, I guess, Jen, I'll start with you. What are your thoughts on that front? Well, I think the mitigation um, sort of angle that we were just talking about is helpful with regard to the wiretap act claims, right? The having the privacy pop up and having, um, you know, consent to the terms of use on the website and making users of the websites aware of the fact that these tools may be used 
can mitigate the risk there in terms of that liability. But uh, what we're seeing, and maybe this is the next pivot in the litigation, is that as these companies are putting these disclosures up on the website, uh, plaintiff's lawyers are focusing on other statutes as well that have confidentiality provisions built into them that um, are outside of the, the wiretap framework. So uh, for example, there may be statutes in various states that prohibit the exchange of certain information about purchasers of certain types of products. And we're now uh, defending a client who's being accused of uh, violating one such statute with regard to um, their use of pixel technology on the website. So not saying that it constitutes just a violation of the Wiretap Act, but also that the use of the pixel technology constitutes a violation of this other statute that prohibits the disclosure of identities of individuals who purchase a certain type of product. Uh, so there, you know, the consent and the disclosure of the pop-up wouldn't necessarily uh, provide a defense. So I think we have to look beyond just the typical wiretap acts and see where else the liability um, may lie in other state statutes. So this definitely seems to be like if we kind of take a step back from this conversation, it definitely seems to be the case where um, that, that the plaintiff's bar is taking old laws that have been on the books for a long time and applying it to the new technology, right? And and seeing what sticks and throwing it against every wall throughout the country, right? Hit as many states as you can, as many jurisdictions. Hopefully there'll be judges somewhere that are like, this gets past a a motion to dismiss, right? And gives them enough to either seek leverage for settlement or otherwise try to push that elsewhere, you know, as precedent. Rachel, what do you think about that? <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's that seems to be the MO of the plaintiffs. It's just, let's throw as many of these ideas and theories out there as possible and see what sticks. And I'm not sure that any of them have thought much about what happens past the pleading stage. I think there's a lot of problems when it comes to class certification. Um, the, you know, ascertainability, who's in the class, how are we going to figure that out? Um, commonality, what was someone on the website? Did they agree? Did they care? Did they care about these privacy issues? I think there's so many issues when, as we get to class certification. Um, unfortunately, in my conversation with plaintiff's counsel about what, what they're doing, where they're going with this, they said that they don't really, they don't necessarily care what the district courts decide because they think it's not going to ultimately be decided until the circuit court and in Ninth Circuit or whatever circuit it is actually rules on these decisions. So they're going to keep pushing it as far as they could go. And they're okay getting bad decisions because they're also getting some, I wouldn't say good decisions, but they're getting decisions that get them past the pleading stage in some jurisdictions. So, you know, I think I think that these cases are going to be with us for a while and it's going to take a long time to kind of play out and figure out where the law actually stands in each one of these states. Right. And you make a great point, which is arguably one of the defendant's best arguments that they could make in these cases is a challenge to class cert, right? There's just too many differences between the different putative plaintiffs and, and it's just not appropriate for class cert. And in fact, there actually has been a decision, I think out of uh, Maryland, there was a, a state court decision, I think, that basically held that that very thing, that, that certification uh, class cert was not appropriate in these kinds of cases for those reasons. The problem is you often can't raise that until well into the, the litigation. So again, plaintiffs kind of take the position of, sure, we can go that far, but then 
it's going to be costly and there's no guarantee you're going to win. You know, maybe you want to settle early and the settlements so far have not looked good. Right. I mean, it, it, if you just take the pixel settlements, for example, some of those are in, I think like what was it, $18 million up in Massachusetts. And I don't think that's all of them, but you know, I think there'll be some, it, it's not, it's, I think the appetite for settlement is not great on the defense side right now either. So, right. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's hard right now because everything is so up in the air. I mean, you really don't know which way these are going. And we've been advising a lot of our clients who have active litigation to kind of slow things down to let the law develop, you know, and it's because it's developing all over the country. So, and we, and we do believe that the courts are going to come down on the right side of these cases and that we will get some good case law soon, but it's taking a while. And I think that we all have to be patient and see, and see where it goes. Right. Like sometimes you wonder if all of these lawsuits getting filed is just going to backfire on the plaintiff's bar and the judges see this potential flood of cases coming towards their docket and try to cut it off with some of the decisions like the one we saw um, out of the Northern District of Illinois more recently and just, you know, elsewhere, just, just maybe, maybe it, it could backfire. Yeah, uh, there was a scathing, there was a scathing decision that came out of Central District of California because one plaintiff's firm had filed hundreds of copycat cases and the judge is basically like, you need to do more than cut and paste and, and send me a new complaint, basically get out of my courthouse. And we were actually surprised because we did not think that judge was going to come down on the defense side on, on that litigation. So we were happy to see that. It hasn't really done much to slow down that plaintiff's counsel or any others, but it was nice to see. <laughs> You know, at least somewhat helpful at the pleading stage is when there's not a lot of specificity in the complaint in terms of really what were the interactions and what was really being, you know, quote unquote, intercepted in violation of a wiretap statute. Um, you know, that's a better case for a court, especially in federal court, to want to dismiss the complaint, uh, you know, just for a failure to plead with specificity, in addition to maybe being doubtful of, you know, the ultimate viability of these claims, like you said, taking, you know, old laws that have been on the books, this new technology, but, you know, our position is essentially harmless technology and trying to merge them together to create this new wave of litigation. Oh, when we talk about old laws and applying them in new ways, one of the other areas that we haven't mentioned is the Video Privacy Protection Act. Um, and I think, you know, the background a little bit better than I do, but it was a Congress book. What's the story with that one? It was it was Judge Bork when he was up for a Supreme Court nomination and they got all into his video rental uh, habits and Congress was like, no, 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 we got to pass a law that, that prevents us from doing this. So, yeah, that's right. This is a video, the VPPA Video Privacy Protection Act and it creates a private right of action with statutory damages potentially and and. Um, go ahead, Rachel, I didn't mean to kind of. Yeah, no, no, I'm just, I, mean, I always think that that background is interesting because it's you know, it has seemed to have nothing to do with the websites, but plaintiffs are now using it and filing, they're filing actually cases all over the country alleging violations of the Video Privacy Protection Act, saying that the Facebook pixels on websites are sending information about what videos were being watched on those websites. So if a company has a how-to video or something like that on their website, this information is being sent to Facebook. And this is a violation of the Video Privacy Protection Act because the VPPA does have strict requirements in terms of disclosures that are usually not on websites because no one thinks they needed to be until plaintiffs started raising it. So that's another area that we're really seeing exploding as well. Right. And again, it, to your point earlier, we've seen sort of this mix of decisions where some courts have allowed those cases to get past the motion to dismiss, but then most recently 
we had the Southern District of New York in, I think it was the Meredith case, decide, dismiss, the, um, I think all, if not all, most of a, a lawsuit that was filed there on the ground that, look, what information that's being shared here doesn't show whether any, whether the individual actually viewed a video. And that kind of goes to video watching habits. So uh, it's, yeah, it'll definitely be interesting to see how these things shake up. But look, I mean, the, the recipe for just leading the plaintiff's bar straight to the trough is number one, create a private right of action. And uh, number two, with some sort of statutory fees, right? Those, you put those two things together and you're going to file lawsuits getting filed, which then, you know, when I start thinking about what's the next waves, there are two things I've been thinking about. Number one, you're seeing more of these statutory claims. And in Washington, for example, the state of Washington is considering a new privacy law that has a private right of action with statutory damages that could potentially be um, come about fairly soon. And we're seeing other laws in other states being used in similar ways. But the thing that I've been hearing about from my friends in the plaintiff's bar is whether companies are complying with what they say they're doing with respect to cookies, right? So when Al goes to a certain website, there's that pop-up that says, what kind of cookies will you allow us to install in your browser? And you can make certain choices. You can turn them all off. You could allow them all. But if I were to turn them all off, it seems like there are a significant number of companies that despite me turning off all the cookies, they still get installed in my browser. And uh, a lot of plaintiffs are talking, or the plaintiffs' lawyers are talking about, are, are there potential, um, are there potential consumer protection law violations there, unfair deceptive trade practice type acts, where you know the, the the website is telling you that you have control, but in fact you don't, whether it's intentional or not, and it's likely not. It's a, a case of the underlying technology working incorrectly. But what's the practical takeaway from that, which, you know, which is that our clients need to be thinking about, um, do I have something like this on my website? And if so, has anyone tested to make sure that it is working the way that it's supposed to be working? So that to me seems like another area to watch, I think, moving forward. Well, I mean, this has been a fantastic discussion, and I think people should learn a little bit more about both of you personally, and would love to hear what sort of TV shows, what's your favorite TV show, what's the favorite book or podcast that you're listening to? Tell us a little bit of something about, about that. Um, Jen, you want to go first? I was going to let Rachel go first. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Rachel, go, you go first. <laughs> I'll jump in. I have two. I've been really interested in a podcast called This Is Actually Happening, and it's real-life stories of people. It's narrated by them. It's usually about 45 minutes of them just talking, but it's crazy experiences that they've gone through that are life-changing, like being attacked by a shark or being hit by lightning or winning the lottery. And it's just fascinating to hear these people talk about these things and how it impacted their life. That's a podcast. In terms of favorite movies right now, it's whatever my six-year-old wants to watch because she lets me cuddle on the couch with her. So, you know, we're usually into Disney stuff, but there's there's lots of six-year-old movies that I've been watching. I'm very happy to do it when I have time to do it with her. <laughs> nice. Jen? I don't really have a podcast or a book. I mean, similar to Rachel, it's sort of like whatever my kids need to read at bedtime is what I'm reading with them to make sure it gets done or what we're watching on TV. Uh, but I have 
sort of my, my family has like this little thing where we all do wordle and if we do like really well on that day we kind of like share it with each other so that's been like my wind down routine now is like i've got to do my daily uh wordle and then through the new york times and then actually miriam webster has a, a similar type uh game you can play so i have like my little series of games depending on how long i can stay awake for each night uh that i kind of run through as my like turn my brain off and relax uh, routine. You compete? You see, like, who, can, who can guess the word in the fewest attempts? You have a family competition on that or no? <laughs> yeah, I mean, kind of. And like, there'll be a random like family text, like I got Wordle into you today, you know, and then it'll be like, well, don't tell me because I haven't done it yet. Uh, but what's funny is, you know, my parents are retired. So they'll both do it basically like sitting across from each other, but they can't say anything out loud because they don't want to give it away. Uh, so yeah, there's a little bit of bragging when you do really well. Um, I've watched my dad do it. I think he just sort of uh, guesses letters. And I'm like, you didn't know that word. You just like ran through all the letters you had available until you made a word. Uh, but we do. We have a little like friendly competition about it. Nice. Nice. Um, well, I've been, I just finished a book. I'm very proud of myself because I don't usually read too much for fun. And I just finished it. Look, I'm holding it up to the video. Like people can see this is an audio thing. So no one can see this. But this is a book called Trust. And it's by a guy named Hernan Diaz. And it was fantastic. And so like, because I never read for fun, I, I started the year with a resolution to myself that I would try to read one book per month. I'm currently at two, so I'm already behind. <laughs> so, so, but this one was, it was on the New York Times. Like, I don't know where to start. So like, let me start with the New York Times bestseller list. I'm sure those are, those are good. And this was the, the most popular one and rightly so it's fantastic. So I highly recommend that if anybody's looking for a book to read. Um, TV shows, I'm really into Succession right now, last season. Like, just give them every Emmy out there. Just just give it to them now. Everyone gets it. Like, it's just a fantastic show. I love that show. All right. Well, thank you, everybody. Appreciate your time. Uh, please feel free to reach out to Jen or to Rachel if you have any questions about any of these topics. They're two of the leading privacy litigators in the country. I'm sure they'd be happy to talk to you and help you proactively mitigate some of these risks while at the same time, if, if for some reason you're unfortunately caught with a class action lawsuit, there's nobody better to defend you. So thanks again for your time and uh, for listening to this podcast. That brings us to the end of this episode of the Biz Lit Today podcast series, which can be found on law.com. I'm your host, Scott Ferguson. Join us next time. The choice of a lawyer is an important decision and should not be based solely on advertising. The views and information discussed in this podcast are for informational purposes only and are not intended to be any kind of legal advice.